Well, once again, I am sorry that I am not able to join you all there in Texas, but I hope you have a grand time, which I'm sure that you will. I have looked at the roster, at the lineup, and you all are in capable hands. And I appreciate that Elder Greg Wren asked me if I would contribute a lecture series nevertheless, despite my not being there. Which... I am most happy to do. In years past, whenever I have been invited to lecture at a conference, I am normally given a topic. But this year, Elder Wren said, go ahead and teach on whatever you would like to teach on. So I have decided to approach a topic that I have never really taught systematically on outside the confines of GCA. Once upon a time, I was sitting downstairs at Main Street Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, sitting across from David Morris, and we were discussing this very thing, the very topic that I'm going to address in this lecture series. And as he listened, he nodded at me and he said, you really need to write another book and call it Seedology. Now, granted, he made up that name and may have made it up on the spot, in which case, kudos to David. But I like the name, and so I am calling this series Seedology, because it is a part of a fully-orbed systematic theology. The same way that we need to understand theology and Christology and pneumatology and even eschatology, even Israelology, we also need to understand seedology, and it is a part of our overarching systematic theology that I think oftentimes gets rather short shrift because it is a large, expansive topic. In fact, it covers the whole of the Bible. It starts with Adam and Eve and then goes all the way to the New Covenant, And indeed, I would argue that in the book of Revelation, the final kingdom ruling over all the other kingdoms of the world is a result of the promised seed finally coming to his full glory and establishing all of the promises and the covenants that have been made concerning him throughout the whole Bible. So seedology is a very large, very expansive topic, but we're going to kind of take it step by step, and hopefully over the course of the next couple lectures, we'll be able to cover enough of it that you'll understand its necessity and its importance in understanding the whole of the Bible. So where do we begin? How do we start discovering seedology? Well, the best place to start is right at the beginning because the promise of a seed begins right at the beginning at the Garden of Eden. So let's begin there. In the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, we read about God's creation of, well, everything. And then finally, he makes Adam. And there is no helper appropriate for him, so he creates Eve. In verse 23 of chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, The man, Adam, said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she is taken out of man. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then chapter 3 starts out, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, Has God said, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was a tree desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's the first mention of seed in the Bible. It means descendants. It's talking about offspring. And right at the very beginning, right here in Genesis 3, God already declares that there's going to be a separation between these two seeds, the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. All of mankind, according to God, is in one of those two camps. You are either a seed of the woman or you're a seed of the serpent. There's no gray area in between. There's no neutral zone. You are either seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. And the whole rest of the Bible follows that pattern. You are either the redeemed of Jesus Christ, or you are part of this world and going to fall under condemnation. So right away, immediately, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God started declaring seedology. Now, this division between the two seeds was an absolute necessity because the serpent 
had exercised so much influence over the woman that had they continued being in cahoots, had they continued communicating with one another, then the whole of mankind would be under the influence of Satan on a constant basis. So God graciously and sovereignly made a difference between the woman and the serpent and created this enmity between them to get them apart from each other. And in the process, he declared that the final seed, the ultimate seed, the redemptive seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. So there's an eschatological element to our seedology in that it is looking forward to the coming of Christ and the final destruction of Satan himself. All of which, I will mention parenthetically, we see in the book of Revelation. Anyway, here's the language. Genesis 3, starting again at verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he, her seed, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That language implies that there is going to be a battle between them. And her seed, who we know is Christ, is going to suffer in the midst of that battle, which indeed he does. He did suffer on the cross for the sins of all his people, the sins that were the direct result of the fall of mankind in Eden as a result of the serpent convincing the woman to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of sin, all of mankind, has fallen because of our federal head, Adam, and therefore we are incapable of helping ourselves or redeeming ourselves. So God intervened, created a separation between the woman and her descendants and the serpent and his descendants, and then said that the ultimate descendant of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent, but it was going to be accomplished through the son of the woman paying a very high price. But look at the difference in the language. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Now, really importantly, not to be missed, God immediately, in speaking to the woman, says things that are counterintuitive, things that require his supernatural intervention, things that cannot be accomplished through human agency. Here's what I'm talking about. Men provide seed in the birthing process. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, the Greek word for seed is sperma which has moved right into our language as a designation of the seed that comes from the man. Women produce eggs. The eggs are fertilized by the seed that comes from a man. And yet, despite that biological reality, God says 
that it is the woman's seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent. Women don't have seed. And yet God declares in his very sovereign, very miraculous way that it is going to be seed of the woman that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And sure enough, that happens. Here we are in just the third chapter of Genesis, and God is already predicting the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The reality is, when Jesus came to the planet, there was no male participation in the process. Rather, according to the angel Gabriel, it was the Spirit of God who was going to produce a child in the womb of Mary. Producing, in the truest sense, seed that came through the agency of a woman without the participation of a human male. So, seedology begins with the recognition that God determines the direction that the seed is going to take, ultimately leading to Christ himself, who is the very embodiment of the seed of the woman, and he is the one who does indeed crush the head of the serpent. So to put a really fine point on this, at the very beginning of human history, when there were only two people on the planet, God was already predicting the ultimate end and the glorification of his son and the destruction of the serpent and that he was going to accomplish all of that miraculously through the language of women having seed, which is a biological impossibility. That's how sovereign our God is. Now, the rest of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis is God cursing the man and the woman and the serpent for their participation in this sinful, rebellious act of not only doing what God said don't do, but the serpent had convinced Eve by saying, hasn't God said? And yet what God said isn't really going to happen. He said, you're going to die. You won't surely die. And so God is judging each of them for their participation in this very rebellious act. And yet in the midst of that, God promises a seed. In chapter 4, we begin reading, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. The implication of that phrase implies that Eve may have believed that this was the promised seed. This is the one who was going to come and crush the serpent. But as we all know, in the story of Cain and Abel, the only person he actually crushed was his brother Abel. And that fact gives you a pretty good sense that even though there are only two sons mentioned here, Cain and Abel, one of them is the seed of the serpent, bringing sacrifices to God that God is rejecting, the work of his own hand, and then he kills his brother, and then he is banished because he is a murderer. So right away, immediately, God starts dividing between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 
Then we read in verse 25 of Genesis 4 that Adam again had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Starting at chapter 5, we read, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them man in the day when he created them. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image, and he named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and other daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years, and he became the father of Enosh. And Seth lived 807 years, and he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. Okay, now, throughout this chapter, that's the pattern we're going to read about the descendants of Adam. And their ages are given until they have their first son. And then we're going to read that they had other sons and daughters. But there are particular people who were named. For instance, verse 7, Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 days, and he died, and Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. And Enosh lived 815 years after he had become the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So why are the other sons and daughters not important? Why are they not named by name? Why is the firstborn named? Because God is developing his seedology. This is why the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is so interested in genealogies, because it is tracing the particular lineage, the particular line that is leading to Christ. So much so, in fact, that when you open the New Testament in both the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, they include genealogies. One of the genealogies traces him back to Abraham, proving that he is the promised seed of the Abrahamic covenant, And the second genealogy traces him back to Adam, showing that he is the second Adam. He is the second representative of the people of God. The same way that Adam became our federal head so that all mankind fell in him, Christ is federal head of all the saved, all the redeemed, and therefore being found in him, we will be saved through him, by him. But in order for him to be David's greater son, in order for him to be our federal head the same way Adam was, in order for him to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, he has to have that spotless genealogy that proves that he is of the right lineage, of the right families. And so much of Old Testament history is determined because God is continuing that particular line, that particular seed leading to Christ. And once you know that, 
suddenly the genealogies in the Old Testament become a lot more interesting. It's not just an arbitrary list of a bunch of begatting that's going on, but it is tracing the seed. It is integral to understanding proper seedology. So as we continue in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, we read about a fellow named Jared. Jared lived 162 years, and he became the father of Enoch. There's a name that should be familiar to you. And then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and other daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived... 65 years, and became the father of Methuselah, and then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Well, it is interesting that Methuselah, through Lamech, becomes the grandfather of Noah. And, of course, you know the story of Noah's flood. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Why was it that Noah and his family, his progeny, his seed, why were they preserved through the flood when the whole rest of the world was destroyed? Well, the answer is what we've been reading here in Genesis. Noah was the seed. Noah was the continuation of the genealogy leading to Christ and connecting Christ to Adam. And I find it really interesting that Methuselah, especially given his name and especially the flood that is coming to destroy everybody, it's interesting that he lived longer than any man before or after him. Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters, so that all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died happily because he was really tired. And if you know the story of Noah, you know that nobody ends up on the boat except Noah and the seven other members of his family. Why? Because, again, God is making a distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Chapter 6 starts, Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the sons of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, what does that tell you about all the inhabitants of the earth? 
all the inhabitants of the earth, were the descendants of the serpent. They were the seed of the serpent. And God distinguished between the seed of the woman, who he revealed himself to, who he instructed, and who he ultimately saved through the punishment that he poured out on the whole rest of the world in order to destroy the seed of the serpent. Because, as we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Boy, you read a verse like that, and it's not difficult to explain to someone that the Bible says that human beings are totally depraved. Total depravity is written all over that verse. And so it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, but Noah found favor, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because, as I keep saying, God was preserving the seed of the woman. Then in verse 9, no surprise we read, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so then you read about God instructing Noah to build a boat, to take his three sons and their wives, and Mrs. Noah, get on the boat, ride out the flood. And why does the book of Genesis list the name of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Because those are the people who are going to repopulate the whole rest of planet Earth post-flood. They are the connecting link back to Adam. So again, not surprisingly, chapter 10 of the book of Genesis says, now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons that were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai. So not only do we read about the descendants of Noah's three sons, but then we find out where they go, where they settle, what cities they are responsible for establishing. For instance, verse 5 says, From these, the descendants of Japheth, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands everyone according to his language, according to his families, into the nations. And then he talks about the sons of Ham, through whom came Cush and Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior in the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Tells us something very important. It was through the descendants of Ham that we end up with Babel, and the Tower of Babel, and Babylon after it. And the concept of Babylon carries us all the way into the book of Revelation. 
So it is only through understanding the separation of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that again we understand all of human history, the various different nations, and how those nations war with each other, how they compete with each other, what promises they have, and who they are descendants of. I argue repeatedly that you cannot understand human history if you don't understand your Bible. Only through knowing God's sovereign plan and his seedology can you make any sense out of human biblical history. Verse 11 tells us that the descendants of Ham also went forth into Assyria, and they built Nineveh. If that sounds familiar, it's because Nineveh becomes the capital of Assyria, and Assyria becomes the enemy of Israel. Oh, and where does Israel come in in the seedology of the three sons of Noah? We learn that in verse 21. And also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. And the sons of Shem were then listed, and the cities that they developed. Now, to this very day, we use the word Semite. You hear a lot about anti-Semitism. Our word Semite comes to us from Shem, the Shemites. It is through Shem that Israel comes into being. There is also an argument to be made that since verse 21 points out very specifically that Shem was the father of the children of Eber, that that word Eberu is the foundation or the root of the word Hebrew. It is through Shem that the Shemites come that the children of Eber come, and that he is the progenitor of the nation we now know as Israel. Verse 33 of chapter 10 tells us, So these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And the very next story we hear about in chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel and how God expanded human beings by confusing their languages so that they would become tribes of people with similar languages as God scattered them out across the planet. And what we know is, it is the sons of Ham who are responsible for the Tower of Babel. In chapter 11, verse 10, now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood, and Shem lived 500 years after he had become the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters, and Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And then it goes on from there, this same pattern that we see through the book of Genesis. The child that will continue the lineage is name by name, and we're told how old their father was when they were born. Then we're told how much longer their father lives and that they fathered other sons and daughters who were not told about. 
And all I really want you to concentrate on, all I really want you to understand from this quick overview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is to recognize the necessity of the genealogies. Why did God include these genealogies? Because he is tracing the seed that is ultimately going to lead to the very seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. These genealogies are purposeful, and that's why they're there. Because God made a promise immediately, as soon as there was a sinner, that there was going to be a Redeemer. That Redeemer, he specifically said, is going to be the seed of the woman. And in order to demonstrate that Christ himself was from that line of seed, there is all of this seedology happening in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that takes us up to the days of Abraham. This is the point at which the book of Genesis finally slows down. The first 11 chapters are just jam-packed with information and history, but it's flying by. We don't get a tremendous amount of detail until we get to chapter 12. And then everything slows down and we get to the very core, really, of the book of Genesis, and we learn about the Abrahamic covenant. And that is what we will cover in the next segment of this series of lectures on seedology.